I have the privilege today of giving the word from Zechariah. Zechariah is uh, a great book, 14 chapters. And there are two famous verses that, that all of us have, have heard of at some, one point or another. And so I'm going to put those on the screen in a second. But the donkey king is kind of the, the king riding the donkey is what I'm focused on today. So the first verse is Zechariah 4.6. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. And the second verse I'm going to look at is Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Well, I have good news for us today. No matter how hopeless our situation, no matter how daunting the task, no matter how overwhelming the need, God has a solution. Because it's not by might that we make our way in God's kingdom. And it's not by power that we get ahead in God's eyes. It's by God's spirit. And no matter how much we get wrapped up in the solutions that are high and mighty or or might seem grandiose, God has a different approach. It's not about the big, flashy wins. I have good news for us today. God has a solution for our shortcomings. It's the way of the king who rides on a donkey. Now, if you've been here over the series of the Minor Prophets, you know that we, the Minor Prophets cover this time where the people had strayed far enough away from what God was uh, intending for their lives that they finally were, they, other nations came in and, and took most of them. All of the, the leaders were taken away and just a few farmers and, and whatnot were left in the land. And it wasn't uh, for a long time that that changed. And, and Haggai, which we looked at last week, and Zechariah cover the same exact period of time where God is saying, it's time to go back and rebuild the temple. God wants them to go back. They want to go back. But why the temple? Well, you know, to us, it, 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 we may not relate. But for them, this was a really important thing. Uh, just think about the fact that Jesus was born into a world with a temple. And it's a very important thing that he was. He had to be in order to accomplish and say some of the things that he did. It was really important that the people did this because the temple was where God was dwelling with the people. The temple was their place of worship. See, all that changed with Jesus. But at that time, that was it. The Holy Spirit, that's where the Holy Spirit would dwell. You know, Jesus changed that for us. But back then, the Holy Spirit was reserved for prophets, priests, kings, and for the whole of the temple. It's a very important thing. And we have now the priesthood of all believers. But without the the temple, they had to find other ways to worship. So they did the alms, they did prayers, they did fasting. But God's saying those, those were interim signs that they would do for worship when they didn't have a temple. And God is saying, it's time. Get back. Build it. 
And so Zerubbabel, where we get that first verse about how is he going to do it, he lays a foundation and then what? They get wrapped up in life, just trying to make ends meet. Life is hard. And so they stall out. So the book of Zechariah covers a lot, and I'm not going to cover all of it. Because it goes and talks about the sins of the past. It talks about the present and how they need to work on this temple. And it talks about the future of what's going to happen after they do. And then it goes into some really great, glorious stuff way down the road. Uh, At one point, it does talk about Jesus and how the king is going to come on a donkey. Right in the middle of it is chapter 7. It's 14 chapters. And I feel like chapter 7 kind of looks at the crux of the issue. There's a roadblock that the people have. And I'm not going to read it all because I'm covering a lot today. But if you want to look at it in your pew Bibles, you can. The, the title in the pew Bible says, Justice and Mercy, Not Fasting. And so just, just to give you a sense of the, the chapter of what it's about. Basically, in a nutshell, the people would have these yearly, twice-a-year gatherings where they would do a big fast together. And this was their way of worshiping. They'd have a fast, and then they'd have a feast. And so they asked of God, they said, find out, you know, are we supposed to do this fast again? So we, we don't maybe relate to group fasting anymore. <laughs> but this was like a big thing, you can imagine. This was how they showed their devotion to God as a group. But even that, God starts challenging them. He says, why are you doing this? Why are you fasting? What difference is it really going to make when actually you're leaving the most important things? You're turning a blind eye to what I care about even more. Not that the fasting wasn't important, but you're missing out on what's really most important. And I'll just read two verses from the chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. So you see, there were, there were deep, there are deep kind of cultural sins going on here. And we all kind of are grown up into our culture, and we just think this is the way it is. And we just keep living that way, and we pass this down generation to generation. And there's some really good things about every culture, and there's some bad things. In this culture, there was an issue with oppression. There was, some, there was something happening where people were ignoring the needs of others. There was a lack of mercy. There was a lack of compassion. It was basically self-centeredness. Does that sound familiar? It should, because our culture, from all the cultures I've lived in and seen around the world, I feel like our culture is is quite self-centered and has taught us all that that's okay. But reality or not, if we like it or not, our lifestyle actually does cause some of these similar things, oppression to the widow and the fatherless and the foreigner and the poor, but we don't think about it because we don't see it as, as easily, right? But we were even just talking this morning in our Bible study about how people who've gone to other countries for a while come back and they get shocked at, at Costco. <laughs> they get shocked at, at the amount of consumption that we have when every, every little resource 
is, is important and in, in those other places. And we forget about this. And we forget about the fact that, you know, you know economics today, I'm not going to go into an economic spiel, but it's kind of a zero-sum game. So when we're benefiting here, someone else is actually not. Uh, someone else isn't. And so without getting complicated, we have to just recognize that there is something going on on a bigger scale that we're kind of just like these people at our default state, unless we're aware that we are living a self-centered lifestyle in our culture and we're letting oppression happen. We're letting people go without and, and, and live with less than they need. And just like in, in Zechariah's day, we, we tend to live our own lives uh, as a culture without really listening to God. And so God's challenge for them is, is a great challenge in chapter 7, the end of it. In verse 13, he says, When I called, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen, says the Lord Almighty. So you see, God was trying to talk to the people throughout all of this. But they were so wrapped up in their own lives. They got there to rebuild the temple, but then they needed houses of their own. So they started making houses of their own. And, and as we read in Haggai last week, they didn't just make houses of their own, but they kind of were making them nice. You know, they wanted to live in nice homes. But they got wrapped up in their own lives. And so God, in the midst of this, was trying to talk. Trying to talk. And what God says is, I talked, but they didn't listen. I called. But there was, no, there was nothing coming on the other side. I mean, even when they were gathering to fast. Even when they, because the, that's what the chapter that we're reading this in. They gathered to do this act of trying to join together to be there for God. And even in that act, God is challenging them. You're doing a ritual. Are you really listening? Are you really listening? It's, um, there's, a, there's an idea that we have when we start thinking of this, like a lack of something, a lack of mercy. They call it the sins of omission, the sins of what we didn't do. We often think of the sins of what we do against another person. You know, I slapped this person. But, like, what about just not caring for someone? That's kind of what God's get, getting at with these people at this point. They're not actually hurting another person. They're not actually persecuting another. But they're not ensuring that justice is given. And the poor and the disadvantaged are getting pushed aside. So, we kind of have a challenge in our culture that is different than theirs, but, you know, we can, I can relate. Uh, I get busy. I got, I got a lot of screens in my life that distract me. I got, you know, music and screens and podcasts and, and newspaper and news and all these things that distract me from listening to God. But th- these are sobering things, but, but Zechariah has given us hope. And this is where you, you can't hear the message of hope until you hear that there's a, ch- there's, a, there's a challenge, that there's a need for it. And that's why we have to think about the challenges first. But the hope is this. There's a solution. And this is not, the solution is not the way of the empire or the system. You know, the empire has the war horses. The empire has the chariots. The empire has the power. They have the money. And the way of the system 
says that might makes right. And you know, money and power buy elections, and they always have, not just in our country, but around the world. But elections aren't the focus in God's eyes, and the ways of the system, well, they affect us. But we can rise above them without playing that game. Because we're never going to win that game. We are never going to have enough war horses and enough chariots to take it on. And because we don't conform to the system, we're not going to gain that kind of power. And that's okay. Because we've got Zechariah 9.9. And I'm going to read 9.9 and 9.10. And this is the verse about uh, the king coming on a donkey. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. When Jesus rode into town, into Jerusalem, on that donkey, it was so important. It was symbolic of something far greater. Because he's immediately talking afterward about war horses and chariots. And that this king riding on a donkey, this prince of peace, is going to do things differently than the way that the world around seems to be thinking it needs to be done. And God has a way of doing this throughout all of Scripture, of choosing meek and humble people and humble ways to bring salvation. And we can trace this through entirety of Scripture. The entire Old Testament is, is kind of focused on this idea of the lineage to the Savior. Uh, every story points to it. Every chapter we get a picture. Uh, more potential excitement. Uh, could the Savior be coming soon? Which line, which bloodline is the Savior going to come through? Can we trace it? Where's the seed? And we can, we can follow this through all of Scripture. And, we, and, and, and what's amazing is when we do trace it, you look at who God chooses. It's not the powerful ones or even the ones who've made good decisions. In fact, it's the exact opposite. We could look at Abraham, who first off was, uh, he was a really old guy, fearing for his life enough to basically uh, lie that his wife was his sister twice. And yet, he was willing to drop everything and live out in the desert because of a promise. And he was willing, after his son was born, he was willing to sacrifice him. And then you think of Israel, uh, or Jacob when he was born, and he was the second born, but he stole his brother's inheritance, and then he swindled his uncle. But that night before he returned to face his brother's army, he basically had a huge night of humility. And he wrestled with God. And when he woke up, he had a new name, a new identity, and he was also physically disabled for the rest of his life. And the next thing he did is he sacrificed everything he'd gained, all of it. Everything he'd swindled his uncle out of. And he sacrificed and sent all that ahead to his brother. He was willing to give it all up in humility. And he ended up not having to give any of it up. And let's think about Judah. If you remember the, the, the story of Judah, he was the brother who said, let's sell our brother Joseph into slavery. He was the one. 
And he has a child with a prostitute. And that child ends up being the one in Jesus' line. But let's take a step and go, what was his conversion moment? Because it was very significant. Because even after all that bad stuff that Judah did, he was the one when, when Joseph, they still didn't know who he was, and he said, we're going to throw Benjamin into prison. And Judah was the one who said, no, take me instead. Isn't that amazing? What an act. That, that's a, it's like a, a Christ act right there. And of all those brothers, who was the one in the line of Jesus? It was Judah. I mean, just keep going and going. Look at Ruth. She was a Moabite. The Moabites, they, they, they had done such awful killing of God's people that they were cursed. They said that there's a line that says they will never be allowed into God's assembly. And yet she was willing to sacrifice her entire life to follow her mother-in-law, to look after her well-being even after her husband died. And she is in the line of Jesus. And soon after her, you think of David. Okay, so first off, God chooses him when he's young, youngest of a dozen boys, and a big surprise. But then, really, the worst thing is the sin he commits when he's king. You know, he, he commits adultery, and to cover it up, kills the, her husband. And... Because of this, he gets, he, he, he's cursed. He, he's going to lose his king. He loses the kingdom for quite a season. And he just accepts it. He repents. He repents so wholeheartedly that when he gets kicked out of the kingdom, he doesn't fight it, he just leaves. And he raises the son who becomes the line of Jesus. He raises that son in tents for a while. They all messed up. And some in bigger ways than others. And for every single one, there was a very, very important moment of redemption. There's an important pattern with all of them that God wants us to notice. And it's, it's this path of humility and of acceptance of, of, a, of a better way. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. And the climax of Jesus' lineage to me is Mary. And, you know, you talk about the opposite of the powers. No money, no influence. She's running for her life. And when she finally has the Savior, he's born next to goats, not even in a bed. And they immediately have to get out of there, running for their lives, and leave the country and spend the next few years in, a, in the country where they were slaves. Their forefathers were slaves in that country. They leave for Egypt just to survive. And why was Mary chosen? Well, I don't know, but one thing I do know about her was her attitude. The famous words that she spoke when the angel told her that she would be the one to give birth to the Savior in Luke 1, 31, 38, she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then there's Jesus. He showed us with his very life the posture God wants us to take. There's a mystery about Jesus that was hidden for ages. Earlier prophets spoke about this coming Savior, but no one actually knew what it was going to be like because it was hidden. Jesus was hidden with God all those years. And he was, in his essence, equal with God, could have anything he wanted. All the power was his. And there was a time in Jesus' life where he knew it, and he faced it, and he was challenged with it. 
He knew that he had the full power of God to do whatever he wanted, and he could have become the most benevolent world king at that time ever and brought a reign of peace. And he chose not to. And we know he was tempted with it because we hear about it in the desert. He was in the desert, and he had the temptation. And we know he struggled with it. We also know he struggled with the path he was chosen at the end of his life. He did not want to go down the path to an early death. He pleaded that there could be another way. Please, God, he cried out in the garden. Please find another way. I mean, think about it. God's all-powerful. God can do anything. Why not figure another way out? Why not let the rightful king take his place now among other people instead of dying? But God knew a better path. And we, we need to hear this today. It's not the path that Jesus wanted, but he did it anyway. It's not the path he wanted, but he did it anyway. Because God wanted it, and God knew it would do something far more powerful for us. It would break the bonds of sin over us, and it would release the Holy Spirit. Without that act, we would still need the temple for worship. We needed Jesus to go down that path of humility, and Philippians 2 spells it out so well that I'm going to read it to you. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So notice this progression. Jesus starts at the top, full equality with God. In every line, he lowers himself further and lower and lower. He says he takes the nature of a servant and he became a human. And he became obedient to the point of death. And not just death, but the most cursed death in all of Scripture on a cross. In Deuteronomy 21, 23, it says the most cursed way of dying is to be hung on a tree. And that you have to be buried the same day because you're cursed by God. And that's what Paul references in Galatians when he says that's how Jesus took our sin. He took the curse. And he, so he humbled himself in every way imaginable. The act of humbling himself in this way was God's opportunity to lift him up and exalt him to the highest place. And there is a pattern here that Jesus wants us to get. He talked about it all the time. If you think about it, the number one thing Jesus talked about, it was the kingdom of God. It was a humble approach, a different approach than the kingdoms around them, than the, than, the, than the powers, than the empire. Become like a child. Don't, don't strive for power or recognition. Take up a cross and follow me. Now let's look at that verse in particular, Matthew 16, 24. Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. 
What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? This is good news for us today. Because the hardships that we go through, the power of the system over our lives, we don't have to submit to those things. There is another way, and it involves submitting to God. It's, a way, it's the way of accepting the donkey, the king on the donkey, and not on the war horse or the chariot. It's the way that Zechariah said to them in chapter 4, how are they going to finish building the temple? Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. One of the most influential scriptures to me in my early uh, adulthood is in, in 2 Corinthians. So when I was young, I was stronger, and I was proud, and I was full of all this youthful energy, and I was ready to tackle the world, and I was going to make a big difference, and I think that was good. But I did need a lesson. The God system of approaching things is different than the system that the world presents to us. Because there's a dynamic. There's a, a real struggle that we face all the time. Uh, we need to do things in our own power, and yet when we're humble, we allow God to actually do more than what we could do with our own power. So I'll read you this, this uh, from Second Corinthians 12. This is 7 through 10. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. There's a, there's a dynamic here that it, we all need to learn, and it's so critical. God does not take away our hardships, our persecutions, our weaknesses. And the people in Zacharias, they struggled with this stuff as much as we do here in this place. Life isn't easy, and that's okay. Paul pleaded with God, remove this thorn, and we don't know what that was. And it doesn't really matter, because we can all relate. We all have things that stab at us and make our lives difficult, make our lives worse. There's physical issues and health troubles, relationship conflicts, there's failure, there's persecution. You know, and I hear from my kids about, you know, how they have to deal with other kids at school. They're just raw kids and just name-calling and sometimes bullying, and, and it's hard. It's not easy for anyone. But hardships are okay because God uses them to show us This way of the king on a donkey, it leads us to the glorious place. See, Jesus submitted himself lower and lower and lower. And although it was painful, difficult, brutal, that is how the entire world received salvation. And this pattern is not just for Jesus. We see it in all of Scripture. Every hero of the Bible follows this pattern. And it's the same pattern for us. There's a deep spiritual truth here that, uh, that I'm trying to communicate, and it's this. That when I'm strong, I don't really need God. I don't really have a place for God. I may not be listening to God. I don't rely on God, and so God doesn't really have a strong place in my life. And that's when I'm strong. 
when I'm feeling confident about something. On the other hand, when I'm weak, when I'm humble, and I do need God, and I'm calling out to God, I'm listening, God has a place in my life, I'm relying on God, God takes up residence with me, God's power is so much greater than my power that God is able to do magnificent and mighty things with my humility and my meekness and my weakness. And God is ready to, to just come and, and, and set up residence with us. Revelations 3.20, uh, Here I am, he says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. God is ready to dine with us, to feast with us for the rest of our lives. But first, we need to set the table and we need to open the door. And that means making space for God's spirit. That means approaching life humbly and open-handed and like Mary, like Mary who said, let it be to me according to your word. And so I'd like to close uh, this story with a I'd like to close with a story from my life about Second Corinthians and um, and this this idea. So it was, goes back to when I was you know in my young adulthood days. So I was struggling. How am I gonna how am I gonna make a difference in this world? And I was eager. I was so eager to do things God's way. Just faster, please. <laughs> in fact, I was I was getting pretty frustrated because I felt like God had called me to do great things. And uh, that was when I was 18, and six years later, I was 24, and I was like, well, I'm, I'm still trying to figure this out. What are these great things? I, I'm not having any impact. I'm just like one or two youth. <laughs> I mean, I was busy. I was super busy. I, I, I went to seminary. I took a job as a youth pastor. I became a worship leader at church and at uh, the seminary chapels. And then I went overseas to be a missionary in Taiwan with this professional theater company. And it seemed like there were great things happening, but they just seemed so small. I was looking for more. I was looking for this greatness. I was like, what's going on, God? And the challenge I was dealing with is I was, I was striving with my own power. I was using my youthful energy and my strength to accomplish more. And as I struggled, I prayed. And these Christians that I was with in Taiwan, they had this beautiful and amazing way of praying. Uh, they would all pray at once a lot of times, which is at first jarring, but then you got used to it and just kind of like, okay, I guess, you know, I'll just keep praying alongside with them. And, but, but the earnestness of their hearts and the amount that they prayed was also kind of a shock to me coming from our, our culture here. And so what surprised me was how much they prayed. And they didn't have resources like we do here. And now this was before the internet was a big thing, but still, you could go out and figure things out. And, um, but they don't have that kind of go get them culture that we have. And, and so their approach was much more about, let's first, before we go out and try to do things, let's just kind of pray and be open to God's power and leading. And actually, it frustrated me. <laughs> I, I'd think... Why are, we, why are we sitting around praying instead of making something happen? <laughs> Let's go and figure something out. Uh, I could tell you many stories, but the one example I'll tell you is there was this new show they were going to do, and it was going to be huge. You know, it was, uh, they were going to tour around the, the country for, like, you know, thousands of people uh, shows. 
and they needed a set for it, and they had no idea what they needed, and they, there was no money. And so they just prayed. And I was with them. I was like, all right, yeah, this is great. And we prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed for like, you know, an hour. And then we took a break and did other things. And then later that evening, we prayed some more. And I'm like, okay, you know, good. And then the next day, okay, let's, let's pray some more. And I'm like thinking, all right, let's get out and like talk to some people. Let's find out what we need to do. Like we're just sitting around praying. But this is the most amazing thing happened. Uh, two things happened simultaneously within the space of the morning. One of them had some odd word come into their mind that nobody knew what it meant. And someone showed up and said, we want to donate you know, $1,000 to you guys. So they took the $1,000 and this word, and they went over to this uh, manufacturing place, and they mentioned the word, and they said, oh, yeah, that's the sort of material. And they kind of realized that's exactly the kind of material they needed for this backdrop. And... The $1,000 covered the exact right amount of what they needed. <laughs> so, of course, I was humbled. <laughs> and I realized, okay, you know, my, my culture that tells me that I need to go out and do things with my own strength, well, maybe that's not the right thing all the time. So, back to me, I was, I was struggling at this point. I was like, God, what's my meaning? What's my purpose? You know, what, what's my, my place in all of this? And then... As I was praying, I actually had a vision that came to me, one of the, the few that, that, that's come to me in prayer like this. And in the vision, I was driving around in this beautiful red sports car, and I was honking the horn and trying to get everyone's attention. And I was like, hey, everybody, honking the horn. And then when the people looked over, I said, hey, everybody, honk, honk, look at this great tow truck pulling me. <laughs> and then the vision ended, and instantly I knew. This is Second Corinthians 12. No matter, how, no matter how amazing our car is, what's really amazing is the tow truck that's pulling the car because it's far greater. And in our weakness, God is able to be the strongest. You know, if we're strong and we drive our own sports car on our own power, God isn't going to be able to take us places. We're just going to end up going somewhere off track, less important. Because it's not about what we show up to town in. Our king who we were supposed to model, showed up on a donkey. A donkey. So, I mean, how obscure is that person? <laughs> I mean, if we're thinking about today, it's like comparing, you know, I'm thinking a king, okay, like let's say a president shows up, they're going to have a, a limousine, they're going to have military escorts, they're going to have their entourage, and compare that to somebody who drives into town on a 30-year-old Pinto or something, you know. <laughs> the muffler is dragging. I mean, who are you going to pay attention to? And the amazing thing is 2,000 years later, we're not talking about the people who had the limousines. We're talking about the one who had the pinto. We're talking about the one who showed up on the donkey. All the wealthiest, most powerful people of Jesus' day, they had their influence, but it was nothing compared to him. The way of the Spirit, the way of God's power is far greater than any other way. I have good news for us today, and it is this. No matter what our struggles, God has a solution for us. The way of the king on a donkey. The way that allows for God's strength to accomplish the task. Whatever the struggle you've got today, God has an answer. 
Whatever challenges might weigh you down, God is ready to bring his strength. Whatever the difficulties you're facing, God has a solution. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that your power is far greater than anything we could imagine. And your strength is so much greater in our weakness. And so we come before you with our weakness. We pray that you'd help us to, to be that kind of a people, to model our lives after Jesus and the way that he was humbled, that we would also be willing to have that posture too, to allow your spirit to do the greatness and for us to be, have the discipline to let our might and our power step aside so that yours can be greater. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.